thanks for coming this evening. Um, in the law department here at the LSE, um, three years ago now, we introduced a scheme whereby we invite a number of professors from other countries basically to visit just for two or three weeks, um, and we have a number each term. Um, we have three at the moment, um, and it's a scheme that's worked very well, um, and we're beneficial to this, this evening because one of these professors under this scheme is going to speak tonight. Risa Goliboff is Professor of Law and Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Her main work is entitled The Lost Promise of Civil Rights. It was published by Harvard University Press in 2007. She's currently writing a book on the demise of U.S. vagrancy laws, and her talk this evening is entitled Constitutional Interpretation in the USA. Her respondent this evening is Jaco Bonhoff, and Jaco's been a member the Law Department here at the LSE since 2008. Yako's main areas of expertise are private international law and comparative constitutional law. And he's got a book that's just about to be published with Cambridge University Press. This is a plug. Um, and it's entitled Balancing Constitutional Rights. Rita's going to speak for about 25, 30 minutes, and then Yako will respond for about 10, and then we'll take questions from you. So thank you, Risa. Oh, sorry, I should just mention that you can tweet questions or comments using the hashtag at LSE.gov or by tweeting directly to at LSE Law. I mean, not at these things. Thank you all for coming, uh, and thank you to Neil for inviting me to LSE and to the law department in general for welcoming me so nicely, uh, and specifically also to Yako, Connor Geary, and Bradley Barlow for helping put this together. So I stand here today wearing several hats, an American speaking to you about my own constitution, a historian speaking about my research, about uh, how the constitution's interpretation has changed over time, a professor of constitutional law, a former law clerk to a United States Supreme Court justice, and a general court watcher, as we like to call ourselves in the United States. I noticed that there were a couple of different descriptions of what I was going to talk about today, and I hope that uh, none of you are here only because you want to hear about last term's cases and my views on how they use history. If they are, I'll give you a minute, because um, I'm only going to talk a little bit about that. Um, the other one talks about uh, the legitimacy of the American system of judicial review, and I'm going to talk more about that. So I think my subtitle, the title is Constitutional Interpretation in the USA, and my subtitle for the evening uh, is The Court, Public Opinion, and Constitutional Conversations. When I teach constitutional law, I explore with my students the basic question uh, of judicial review at length. What justifies nine unelected people overturning democratically passed laws? And this is also called in the United States the counter-majoritarian difficulty, right? The court is not a majoritarian body, and when it acts, it overturns uh, majoritarian uh, uh, acts, and that produces a difficulty. So it's often said that the innovation of American constitutionalism is that the people are sovereign, the people delegate limited powers to the federal government, 
uh, and create all kinds of checks on the government to prevent tyranny, and that when the government exceeds constitutional boundaries, courts act on behalf of the people to reaffirm constitutional limits. And that leads to this question of the majoritarian difficulty. So I'm going to talk today about one recently prominent response to the counter-majoritarian difficulty, which is that the court is actually not counter-majoritarian. It's that the court is majoritarian. And uh, this argument says that when the court acts, it is usually, if not always, following American public opinion rather than leading or thwarting it. And if that's true, if the court is actually doing what most Americans want, then you can dissolve the counter-majoritarian difficulty. And what this argument does is try to redefine what it means to be majoritarian. So the way uh, majoritarian is usually defined in the counter-majoritarian difficulty is quite formally. What is majoritarian is what democratically elected legislatures and executive officials do, right? That's what is majoritarian. So the new move suggests that legislatures and executives don't necessarily represent the will of the people. Rather, something that has come to be called public opinion represents the majority. Uh, and so scholars look at big demographic shifts. They look at shifts in public opinion. They look at shifts in politics. And if they find that the law is, the court is following public opinion when it strikes down laws, then it is actually acting with the majority, even though it's striking down laws. But that move away from a formalist account of what is uh, majoritarian opens up new objections, right? One objection is how to define the relevant majority. Another objection is how to define public opinion and what is public opinion. And scholars have raised these critiques. So what I want to do tonight is put my historian's hat on my court watcher's head and offer a different kind of objection, one that I think is quite fundamental. And that suggests that the question itself is problematic and faulty, that the court and public opinion are not separate enough to ask whether one is following the other or vice versa. I will try to refrain from saying the court and public opinion every time I talk about them with the square stair quotes. Um, I will do it sometimes, but you should imagine the stair quotes there every time I say the court and public opinion. So the origins for this line of thinking are in uh, a, a general way of thinking about the law that scholars have embraced for some time, which is that there's something called the law and there's something called society, and law and society influence each other in one direction or another, uh, and this has been a hugely intellectually rewarding way that historians and other legal scholars have thought about the development of the law over time. And one can see the court and public opinion question as a version of this law and society question. Is the court law, one form of law, following public opinion, one form of society, or the other way around? But for several decades, scholars have pointed out that these categories of law and society are not actually all that separate. That law constitutes society in ways that we can't always even imagine. Although the person who, um, just as an aside, the person who made this fundamental critique in the 1980s, a man named Robert Gordon, uh, when I got married and I showed up in his office, he said, how does it feel like to be institutionalized? Um, and at the time, I don't think I realized how deep that went 
meant for him, right? But this that, that to be a wife is to be a legal category, right? And these legal categories constitute us in lots and lots of ways. And by the same token, it's hard to talk about the law without understanding all of the social processes, social dynamics, and social contexts that create it. And so scholars, uh, and especially historians, have taken to talk about the, the semi-autonomous field of law and have tended to create caveats when they're talking about law and society. The stronger version, even, of that uh, recognition is that law and society are mutually constitutive, that the one only exists in conjunction with the other. Constitutional law and constitutional theory haven't really taken this point to heart, however. The court and public opinion are often discussed as if they do truly exist separate and apart from one another. And given the stakes of the counter-majoritarian difficulty and the question of the legitimacy of judicial review, one can see why people want to talk about it in these ways. And given those same stakes, one can see why it's also important to recognize the fallacy of this binary if it in fact exists. So my plan today is to talk about how the court and public opinion are far more complex than usually understood, and to show how they are not separate and opposed, but interrelated and mutually constitutive, both in how Supreme Court decisions come about and how they're understood once the court has acted. The binary, in fact, obscures the many actors and influences and dynamics that make constitutional interpretation happen. And once you look more in depth at those actual processes of constitutional interpretation, you can see that a given case does not just appear at the court one day and the justices wonder whether to thwart or not to thwart the will of the majority as expressed in legislation. Much of the work uh, that's done to construct a case is done before the case ever gets to the court. People decide that a harm they've experienced is or can be a legal harm, and they seek legal help. Lawyers agree that it can be a legal harm. They choose some cases and not others, some clients, some facts and not others. They shape these claims into the legal categories that they understand to be available. Lower courts embrace these arguments, or they don't. Legislatures might change laws prophylactically, anticipating that the constitutional interpretation will change. Legal scholars and popular media comment. They create new interpretations. Uh, they, they oppose or, uh, or advocate for particular interpretations. And when the case gets to the court, lawyers in particular shape justices' understandings of what matters, what's happening in the world, what everyone else has been doing about it, what arguments are possible, and what the Constitution can or should look like. Only then does the court act. This means that by the time the court decides a constitutional case, public opinion in the form of all of these choices by all of these other people and institutions have already acted on what that case looks like. And that's not to say that the justices have no autonomy. It's not to say they have no discretion. They can still obviously shape the cases in lots of ways, but they don't do so in a vacuum. The same is true on the other side of the court's decision. Supreme Court cases in and of themselves are not a singular thing. And this is something I've been puzzling on since I was a law student. And I was asked to identify the holding of a particular case. And it was not clear to me, just upon reading the case, not necessarily what the holding was, but, for example, a phrase like all deliberate speed from Brown versus Why is that the 
phrase we all took. There were lots of other phrases we could have taken, and it always seemed to me that one couldn't really know, at least as a law student, what the essential thing that was going to come out of that case was until people already decided and started talking about it after the fact. It's part of the ongoing constitutional conversation that the court case is not the only significant event. It's part of an elaborated process of dialogue. And part of that is because a case is not a singular thing. A case operates on a number of different levels. I just want to throw out what I think these levels are. A case operates as a legal outcome, a political intervention, legal doctrine, legal rhetoric and implications of that rhetoric, as a cultural symbol, as a constructed image of social reality, as a legal process, and as an instruction or instructions to lower courts. In other words, what the court does doesn't become meaningful until it enters into conversation with other actors. I want to use two examples to make these two points tonight, one from my historian's hat and one from my court watcher's hat. From my historian's hat, I want to talk a little bit from my book about vagrancy laws and the changing constitutional interpretation of American vagrancy laws during the long 1960s. Um, and I'll briefly talk about the uh, after effects of the court decision, but really I'm going to talk about the before. And then from my court watcher's hat, I want to talk about last term's two cases involving marriage equality, the same-sex marriage cases at the court last term. And here I'll focus on my second point on what comes out the other end and what it might mean and how it might mean different things. I could easily have done this the opposite way. I could have done both of them for both, but I'm going to run out of time as it is. So uh, I'm just going to do that. The point is that the stories that I'm going to tell are true for, I would say systematically true for all cases, but I haven't actually tested it. So I'll say virtually true uh, for all cases, whether or not it's apparent uh, at the moment. So the historical example, vagrancy laws in the long 1960s. As many of you may know, American vagrancy laws came from England with American colonists. They proliferated across uh, the colonies and then the United States, and most states and localities had vagrancy laws for centuries. And two hallmarks of vagrancy laws that made them particularly useful to law enforcement authorities and local officials um, were that they were status offenses and that they were incredibly broad and vague. So what do I mean by status offenses? Most laws, most criminal laws, criminalize particular conduct, and vagrancy laws criminalize a particular kind of person. So I want to read you a little piece of the Jacksonville, Florida, 1972 ordinance that, uh, ordinance that gets struck down by the Supreme Court in 1972. You will notice how Elizabethan it sounds, but I also want you to notice that it, it creates a crime of status. It says the following. Rogues and vagabonds or dissolute persons who go about begging, persons who use juggling or unlawful games or plays, common drunkards, common nightwalkers, thieves, pilfer, pickpockets, da 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 da, uh, persons wandering or strolling around from place to place without any lawful purpose or object, habitual loafers, disorderly persons shall be deemed vagrants. They don't commit the crime of vagrancy. There are no actions here. There are types of people. And that meant uh, often that police could arrest anyone they wanted whenever they wanted, although they tended to arrest some kinds of people, and we'll talk about this in a minute, more than others. As you can also tell, that language is rather vague and broad, wandering about with no apparent purpose. Most of us do that at some point. Uh, it's not particularly hard to find someone doing that if the police want to. So for centuries, American officials, like their English counterparts, employed vagrancy laws against anyone who is out of place in any way, not just those you might think of as vagrants. 
They use such laws variously to regulate and extract labor from the resident poor, to exclude and punish poor strangers, to incapacitate apparent threats to the social order, to prevent the commission of incipient crime, to enforce racial segregation and subordination, and to discipline minorities, dissidents, and nonconformists of all stripes. Into the 1950s, most American legal professionals uh, thought that vagrancy laws were legitimate, necessary, and constitutional, even if different from most other criminal laws. But by 1972, the Supreme Court had struck down a vagrancy law. Actually, in 1971 and they struck down three different laws. So I want to tell you a little bit about how that happened between the 1950s and presumed legitimacy to the 1970s and illegitimacy. And I want to keep my eye on the way the court and public opinion are inextricable over this process. So in 1952, lawyers for the first time brought the Supreme Court uh, a case to consider a traditional vagrancy law. Uh, in, in the context, I'm gonna, it's going to be very hard for me to rein in these stories, so I will try hard not to, but um, the stories are very colorful. There's a, a communist soapbox orator in Los Angeles who had been arrested many times before, and so he's finally arrest, arrested as a vagrant because one of the definitions of vagrant in California is dissolute. What does dissolute mean? It means someone who has committed crimes in the past, so he had committed crimes crimes in the past, crimes like leafleting, uh, standing on a park bench, defacing a park bench by standing on it, all kinds of things like that. So he gets arrested for vagrancy. There is a nine-day trial for this vagrancy arrest. Um, and he brings this case to the Supreme Court, and a few of the justices say, oh, this, this law looks funny. I don't think this uh, should be constitutional, but there are procedural problems with the case. And though the court takes it, it eventually dismisses it as improvidently granted. Um, and those in the biz like to call that digged, dismiss as improvidently granted. So they dig the case. And in fact, that's something that they do with vagrancy cases frequently over the next 20 years. They take them and they dig them. They're not really sure what to do about them. But two justices, uh, Justice Douglas and Justice Black, who are two of the more liberal justices on the court, uh, dissent from that dismissal. And they indicate that they're interested uh, in vagrancy laws, that they think vagrancy laws are problematic. They see this as an infringement of free speech. They identify that the laws are too vague, and they also identify that they're status crimes and that that might be constitutionally problematic. Over the course of the rest of the 1950s, as police continue to use vagrancy laws uh, against any new threat to social order that arises, uh, the threats themselves start to become more vocal in opposition. It's not that people had said before, oh, I'm being arrested for vagrancy, and, and that's legitimate. Uh, they didn't always. But now, you've got a growing civil rights movement. You've got Brown versus Board of Education. You've got African Americans increasingly protesting. You also have groups like the Beats, who are generally anti-establishment and happy to say that uh, the police activity against them is illegitimate. Um, gay men and lesbians who are increasingly organized, and by the way, all of these groups are being harassed by the agency laws. Um, and they're finding, they're increasingly finding lawyers who will take their complaints. And lawyers who see that though these groups are situated very differently and are being harassed for very different reasons, they actually have a lot in common. And the vagrancy problem is a problem rather than lots of little problems. In 1960, the court takes the second case uh, in involving uh, a lawyering law, which is closely related to vagrancy and often in vagrancy laws like in the Florida law I just mentioned. And this time, a poor, alcoholic, African-American man in Louisville, Kentucky gets arrested all the time. And this I have to share with you. The time that he gets arrested that leads to his Supreme Court case, he often got arrested at the bus station when he was waiting for the bus to go home, uh, which was also apparently a place where uh, alcoholics tended to hang out. 
Um, and he decides not to wait for his bus at the bus station. He goes to a bar to wait for his bus, and the name of the bar is the Liberty End Cafe. Uh, you can't make that up, I don't think. Um, uh, and uh, it's at the end of Liberty and West Streets, and so it's called the Liberty End Cafe. And the police come looking for him, actually, and arrest him. So his case comes up to the Supreme Court, and the court sees that this is a problem, again, and actually finds for him, but does so on a really narrow basis, doesn't actually find the law unconstitutional. Over the next 10 years, the court takes and avoids about a dozen more cases where they either take the case and decide it narrowly or they uh, dismiss the case as improperly granted in a much higher proportion than they usually uh, do. But as they are taking these cases and avoiding them, they are being educated about this vacancy law problem and what it looks like. Vacancy law challenges come from, over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, the following groups of people. African Americans and other civil rights activists, communists, labor union members, poor people, beats, hippies, gay men, lesbians, and other sexual minorities, women, Vietnam War protesters, student activists, young urban minority men, and other dissidents. So folks who have been regulated are now organized, asserted, have lawyers, and they find that vacancy laws are obstacles to their other goals, whether those other goals be sexual freedom, racial equality, political protest, and it's not a coincidence that representatives of most of the major social movements of the time were involved in the vagrancy challenge. If you can't walk down the street without being arrested on site, then any other rights you're trying to vindicate are hard to do so. I'm going to have to skip ahead. Uh, so these groups made visible to legal professionals what had previously been invisible uh, to legal professionals, and that is that constitutional rights of a variety of kinds are implicated with, uh, by vagrancy laws. So key to this process of uh, educating the court is a dynamic in which social articulations of harm get translated through intellectual ferment and lawyerly argument into arguments before courts, and then people react to what the courts say, not just the Supreme Court, but lower courts as well, and they start to articulate their harms in similar language and to appropriate the language. So African-Americans make claims, and then hippies say, we're just like African-Americans, and then gay men and lesbians say, we are just like hippies, and as this process goes on, the court starts to see the relationship between all of these cases that might otherwise look pretty disparate. Now, we wouldn't want to give you the impression that there was a unified change of public opinion over this period, because at the same time that these social movement groups uh, and various individuals are pursuing the vacancy laws, there are a lot of people who are committed to retaining them. Most of those folks are people tasked with maintaining social order and preventing crime. Police departments, police officers, local officials, state officials. Um, and they are convinced that vacancy laws are necessary for a whole host of reasons, and their views keep coming before the courts as well. But one can see over this period the shape of their views shifting too. So at the beginning of this period, there's an outright defense of vacancy laws, and by the end, there's an acknowledgment of the need to modernize vacancy laws, that that Elizabethan language is inappropriate, the police need some tools, but maybe not that one. Uh, and as well, there's a shift from an outright defense of maintaining conformity, hierarchy, and order to a defense that vagrancy laws are needed to prevent crime. We're not trying to maintain conformity. We just want to prevent crime, although there's still some defense of conformity over time. So by the time the court decides the key cases in 1971 and 1972, it's kind of hard to isolate the court's view of vagrancy from this 20-year conversation in which it has been involved. 
Reading the final 1972 opinion in light of the prior challenges shows all the ways the court comes to the case thinking about what has gone before it. It reflects a multiplicity of these social movements. It reflects the ideas of nonconformity and equality that have become so prominent over the course of the 1960s. It reflects changing ideas of the role of the criminal law in policing morality. And it reflects um, a deep criticism of the police and of police discretion, although crime prevention remains, I think, the stickiest part for uh, the Supreme Court. Um, so the court and its opinion are deeply shaped by changing views both within and without the court by both proponents and opponents. So one could say here that public opinion on vacancy laws changed over time, um, but that would really not tell the story. The story is rather, I think, one uh, of a shifting and dialogic process of interaction and exploration uh, that led many, though not all Americans, as well as the justices, to change their views on the constitutionality of this previous, previously ubiquitous set of laws. Um, public opinion and the court were not separate throughout this process. They were routinely, systematically influence each other, influencing each other. So by the time the court decides the case, it was not for the first time acting in response to some singularly articulated public opinion. I was going to talk just briefly about what the opinion is understood to mean going forward, but I think I'll save that. If anyone wants to uh, ask about that, I can talk about it. Um, I, I want to turn instead to the contemporary example and talk about the various meanings in that case and how uh, it looks going forward. So there are two cases that the Supreme Court considered uh, last term, and uh, the the. Uh, the segue feels abrupt, but there are lots of reasons why these two things are connected that I can tell you about in question and answer if you want, as well as just being interesting things that, that have been going on. Uh, so the two cases are Hollingsworth v. Perry and United States uh, versus Windsor. And uh, first I'll tell you a little bit about the cases and then talk about uh, their various meanings and how I think you can see on the other side, so I've just shown you how leading up to a Supreme Court action, uh, you can't really disaggregate the court and public opinion, and now I'm going to show you how coming out of the Supreme Court's action, you can't really disaggregate them either. So the first case, Hollingsworth v. Perry, is a California case. Uh, in 2008, the California Supreme Court uh, announced that limiting marriage to uh, different sex partners violated the California Constitution as a matter of equal protection. And the voters of California then passed a proposition called Proposition 8 as a ballot initiative that amended their state constitution to limit marriage to one man and one woman. So the Supreme Court of California acts, and then you get this ballot initiative changing that action. Couples sued uh, to challenge the amendment and say that it was unconstitutional under the federal constitution. The second case uh, was a federal law. Um, the case is called United States versus Windsor. And in the 1990s, in response to the possibility that some states would legalize same-sex marriage, uh, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, also known as DOMA. And DOMA defined marriage as being between one woman and one man uh, for all federal purposes. So that means for immigration, for taxation, for benefits, for military housing, for anything you can think of, that was the definition of marriage. And again, a couple sued uh, to have the law struck down. In both cases, interestingly, 
Government officials refused to defend the law. Those who were tasked with defending law said, ah, we, we don't want to defend this law. But they did enforce the law, and that enabled challenges to go forward. If they refused to even enforce it, you can't even get to the challenges. So they enforced it, but they, uh, they didn't defend it. So other groups of people decided they would defend these laws. So the initiators of the ballot initiative in California of Proposition 8, they tried to defend the law. Uh, and the Congress people who voted for DOMA tried to defend that law. So there were two questions on the table when the court took these two cases last year. Um, one, would they even answer the constitutional questions? Would they find that these people who decided to defend the law had standing to do so? So you can't, not anyone can defend the law. There has to be a reason why you have an interest in the case. Um, and then, if they decided to get to the merits of the case, what would the court say about the constitutional questions? So in Hollingsworth, the California case, the court found no standing. This meant that the trial court's invalidation, so the lower court had invalidated Proposition 8, had said you have to allow same-sex marriage. So this meant that the trial court's invalidation stood, but uh, it didn't extend the ruling anywhere else, right? It didn't say that states generally were prohibited from prohibiting same-sex marriage. It just said, California, you can have what you did. Um, so same-sex marriage uh, is now uh, alive and well in California, but the court didn't apply it anywhere else. In Windsor, the federal case, the court found standing and it struck down DOMA. So it said that the federal government could not define marriage as between a man and a woman. Uh, it said that defining marriage was traditionally the job of the states. The federal government couldn't take it away that job, in particular because DOMA infringed liberty interests under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. So I, I, in an earlier iteration that was much longer than this one, I went through all of the aspects of a case that I had talked about earlier and applied them here. But I'm just going to go through a few of them to point out uh, <coughs> how they point in different directions and how they offer up various resources for future litigants, for cultural production, for constitutional consciousness, and how it's best to understand them uh, through a conversational process of elaboration. So first, the legal outcome. Marriage equality proponents won in both cases, at least in a sense. So Proposition 8 had been invalidated, and the trial court had said so, and that stays uh, uh, as an outcome. Uh, DOMA is unconstitutional as an outcome. So both of these outcomes look pretty good for the proponents of same-sex marriage. As constitutional doctrine, things look a little less definite. So in the California case, the court punts on the question altogether. There is no mention of same-sex marriage, barely at all, uh, in the California case. And in the DOMA case, the court talks uh, about the federal law that was violated under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, but it doesn't use any of the language or any of the tests that are usually used in such cases. It's unclear whether it thinks it's a problem of freedom and privacy or whether it's a problem of equality. Um, and it refuses to treat state laws, in the California case, the same way. So there's a real question about what the constitutional doctrine is saying here. Those opposed to the right to same-sex marriage took some solace, and those hoping for the, a statement that there is a right to same-sex marriage were disappointed. On the rhetoric of the case, the marriage equality proponents, again, largely took the day. The California case assiduously avoided talk of the merits, and the DOMA case went on at length about rights, about equality, and about dignity. And Justice Scalia, who dissented in that case, said, well, the court says this case is about federalism, but then it talks all about rights. So what is this case about? Uh, as for lower court instruction, you got mixed signals, especially in the DOMA case. 
So in the DOMA case, the problem is they say this is only about the federal government, it's not about the states. But then all the rhetoric about equality and dignity, that would seem to apply pretty universally, right? That's not just about the federal government. And Scalia points this out in dissent, saying um, that the lower courts should distinguish away this case in new state cases because it's only supposedly about the federal government, but then also calling out the majority by saying there's no analytically coherent way to separate the federal government from the states if you're really talking about dignity and equality and liberty. Uh, so in short, on a simplistic level, you could say uh, that the court is following public opinion in these cases, that public opinion has changed on same-sex marriage dramatically and on sexual orientation generally dramatically over the last 20 years. Um, but I actually think that such an analysis would reify the binary of the court and public opinion, and that these cases are equally amenable to showing us the problems of that binary. Uh, and in fact, I think about these cases uh, in the context of my argument as kind of meta cases, right? These cases are actually all about the argument that the court follows public opinion. So one of the crucial ways that the court and public opinion mutually constitute each other is through the medium of the legal scholar. So for the last 20 years, legal scholars, 10, 15, 20 years, have been expounding on this question, does the court follow public opinion? And the justices have been listening to all of this talk about does the court follow public opinion. They have heard that they can increase their legitimacy if they follow public opinion. They have heard that they could produce backlash if they don't follow public opinion. And they are all thinking about whether or not they're going to risk their legitimacy if they answer the same-sex marriage questions in particular ways. And both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, who are on opposing sides of Collinsworth, are talking about ongoing debates, current debates, big political questions. They are very, very hyper-aware, in part because academics keep telling them that public opinion is changing and we don't know how fast. The lineup in the cases, which is puzzling to court watchers, also suggests this. Justice Ginsburg um, agrees with the majority not to decide the merits in the California case, even though she's one of the more liberal members of the court, and she indicated in oral argument that she worried that it might be too soon to answer this question, and so she wanted uh, to punt it. So in my view, these cases are ideal primers in how the court's constitution by society is itself a product in my, view, in my view, faulty arguments about the court's role in constitutional change. That's what it's thinking about. I don't think these cases look the same way in the absence of a self-conscious court understanding its, itself in the terms that scholars have set out for it. So the court isn't just responding to external changes in the world. The court is recognizing the constitutional conversation in which it is always constantly engaged. And I think that that recognition is pretty good evidence of the very problem with this binary. The court itself does not stand apart from public opinion, and it makes little sense to speak as if it does. Now, one, I'm almost done, one sympathetic to the court calls public opinion argument might take my argument to mean that if there's no real separation between the court and public opinion, then judicial review must be legitimate. But that's not my conclusion. For every Supreme Court case, there's this ongoing constitutional conversation. But every conversation looks different, has different roots, different participants, different institutional homes, different normative arguments. The existence of that constitution reveals that the court and public opinion are mutually constitutive as a matter of historical and contemporary practice. But that doesn't mean that it legitimates the categories in which constitutional scholars attempted to speak. It means that the practice reveals the instability of the categories themselves. 
Now, what I'm not sure about and what I keep pondering is whether my conclusion that thinking about law and society the way law and society scholars have thought about the problems of reifying law and society in the context of constitutional law, the court, and public opinion, I'm not sure whether that only undermines this argument that public opinion is, uh, is majoritarian and that the court follows public opinion, the attempt to solve the counter-majoritarian difficulty, or whether it undermines the whole construction of the counter-majoritarian difficulty. I haven't been able to decide whether the formalist definition of the majority shields that construction from my critique, or it doesn't. So I leave you with that question, and I thank you for listening, and I look forward to Yako's comments and to your questions. Well, first of all, um, thank you, Risa Goldenberg, for this truly, truly fascinating um, lecture. So my privilege is that I can actually talk about the things I like about this lecture and about the book uh, and your other materials. And, and one of the things that I think makes this work so exciting is that what this work does is that you uncover agency and contingency in a field that spends enormous intellectual capital on trying to present a facade that, of no contingency and no individual agency, right? So a lot of legal discourse is about trying to show that the law is as it is and it couldn't have been otherwise. And it's also about trying to show that individuals don't make all that much difference in developing the law. And, and you show that, well, not so fast. And I think that's, that's extremely interesting because at the same time, you take this facade very, very seriously and you show that it actually matters to the people, to the participants in a legal uh, system. And that strikes me as a, a very fruitful and really very interesting uh, project. Now, I don't feel qualified to talk about the substance of either the, the vacancy episode or the um, equal sex marriage uh, episodes, other than to say that I find your reading on both counts um, illuminating and convincing, but I'm sure there'll be lots of questions on, on those two particular topics. So what I thought I would do is to talk a little bit about how your scholarship could be relevant sort of more broadly, both in terms of its methods and in its, um, in its substantive conclusions. Right? So what could other people doing other work in other areas or in other legal systems take from your work? And hopefully that sort of relevance beyond this context um, study would then go back onto your work and perhaps also the beyond might be relevant for, for your work as well. So that's what I'd like to do in these few um, minutes. So it's basically about methodological and substantive implications of what you are, what I, what I read you as doing. So first, maybe two very brief points in terms of, of methodology. How does this matter for lawyers doing lots of different projects? And one thing I think that, that you do is that you introduce a whole range of new conceptual vocabulary that is extre potentially extremely useful. Right? So if you think about classical jurisprudence, general legal theory, we think about laws as being valid or invalid, they are binding or not binding, you have a precedent or something is not a precedent, and, and you show a, a, you bring up a much more sort of fuzzy set of but very revealing categories. So like if you look at the materials of, of lawyers in a ministry of justice, for example, as you do in your book on racial discrimination, you see that these lawyers don't talk about rules as being 
binding or not binding, they talk about them as being vulnerable. Right? We think that there is a, a doctrine here that is vulnerable, or they talk about a doctrine as being at risk of something changing, right? or they think about a new legal option as becoming visible. Um, and those, those categories of, of laws being vulnerable, doctrinal options being vulnerable or visible or at risk, I think would, should spur work in general legal theory to think much more carefully about some of our received concepts. The same about analogy. Right? So lawyers have very sophisticated and technical ideas about what are the true analogies, but then your talk, as you um, just told us, you show that you can have changing ways of thinking about how this type of vagrant is like that type of vagrant, right? The social dynamics that make people see all of a sudden that this beatnik, is that the term, I think, <laughs> is like that streetwalker or is like this um, person who's being discriminated. And, and there, too, I think it broadens up a whole range of fascinating questions. Um, the other methodological point, I think, is that you question a lot of the assumptions that some of us, or many of us, actually hold quite dearly. And just to give two examples, assumptions particularly about the way law develops and law changes. So many of us will have ideas, I suspect, about things like a slippery slope argument. And slippery slope arguments are very, very dangerous. Or another argument that you hear quite often is the idea of the dilution of rights. Right? So the argument that you see quite often is that if you expand the coverage of rights, then they will somehow become less intense or less strong in their protection. That's something that intuitively makes perhaps some sense, and you hear this quite often. And I think your work shows, well, not so fast. There's actually very little that we know about this. There's very little that you can say in general terms about how this actually works. Right? Is it true as an empirical matter that if you expand the coverage of a right, if a right gets broadened, if a doctrine gets broadened, then that means some kind of weakening of the, of the core. And I, I again think that your work raises lots of questions there. Um, so then my second point would be about methodological implications and substantive implications from a comparative law viewpoint more specifically. So this would be what can we in Europe um, learn about your work and what might the European experience perhaps conversely tell uh, um, tell, tell American lawyers about, about their processes. And so here I go back to your general description about this mutually constitutive relationship between the court, what you call the court and public opinion, and about this idea of law as a semi-autonomous field. Um, and I think it could be really interesting to use that idea of semi-autonomy as a template for comparative study. And so then what you would say is that law as a descriptive matter and also as a normative ideal, is and always has to be somewhat autonomous. It always has to be and it always is seen as somewhat separate from society, from public opinion, uh, as you call it. But it also, of course, is and has to be somewhat connected to society, to public opinion, etc. And then what you can look at is how do different legal systems and different legal cultures manage that um, that, uh, not so much opposition, but that relationship, I think you should call it. And so you could look at things like, um, well, uh, how do people even define this idea of law being semi, somewhat autonomous, right? What does this somewhat closed off, what does that actually mean, and how do you implement that? What does it mean for law to be somewhat responsive 
to social changes, etc. How do we even see this? Do we see this as a dilemma, a, a, a problem, or do we see this as a challenge for lawyers? Do lawyers talk about this idea of law having to be somewhat separate but also somewhat open to society? Is that a sort of a, a dilemma that they talk about in terms of, well, we're caught between a rock and a hard place or Greek mythology, or is it something, you know, this is a, a challenge that only lawyers can actually can actually address and we have some kind of hope that we can overcome somehow this, this dilemma. Right? And to just give you maybe one example relating to my own uh, work that I hope will be relevant here, is about the different categories that lawyers use when they talk about this idea of somewhat closed and somewhat open. Um, and here I think there are some striking differences between the US, I'm going to use the same scare quote, <laughs> the US and Europe. So if you talk about law as being somewhat closed off, the typical US elements that surface in, in your writing and in your talk are ideas of rules and categories and, and precedents. Right? So, so the closure comes from, let's say you're talking about the racial discrimination Period. The closure comes from you have an amendment, one amendment here, and you have one doctrine there, and you have another right or statute there, and those sort of are closed off. Uh, and that, that constitutes the, the, the closure or the formality. We can talk about the concept of formality perhaps in a second. Um, now, on the European side, things would look very differently. If you simplify again, the way that many European lawyers present their system as somewhat closed off, right? so the way they emphasize this autonomous character would be through some kind of pyramid of, of concepts. Again, simplifying, of course. But to give an example about, the, about legal change, because that's where I'd like to go, is to suggest that these different images of how law is somewhat closed off or somewhat open, how these different images may have implications for the way law changes. So if you take your narrative about the way that in the United States through the 1940s and 50s um, ideas about social and racial discrimination changed, uh, very similar to the, the vacancy project today, what you see is the legal change happens through people saying, here is this one amendment, and it gets sort of broadened out. Right? Or here is this one statute that protects certain people, and that gets broadened out. Whereas in the European system, you wouldn't start with an amendment here or a statute there. You'd say, for example, in the German tradition, you'd say, well, we just put the most important right at the top, which would be some kind of human dignity, and that just radiates downwards. And now you can see, I hope, you can see that you get two very different images of legal change, right? this sort of outward radiation from different islands here and there, or a sort of downward trickling of, from, from a general concept at the top that then filters and filters downwards. And I, and I wonder, um, well, that would be just an assessment, a statement that that might be um, interesting to think about. Why, why is that interesting then in return for work in the United States? Because if the comparative project suggests that there is contingency as among different systems, then perhaps there might also be contingency within systems and over time in particular. And that was, would be my last set of points to talk a little bit about, about that. So um, you are very careful in, in for example, writing um, uh, on what is called the new constitutional history um, to say, well, historians should take law very seriously. And that certainly means that they need to take legal doctrine very seriously. But I'm wondering whether it shouldn't mean more, and whether it shouldn't mean taking 
attitudes towards what good law looks like, what, what does good legal reasoning look like, what, how semi-autonomous should law be, um, um, to take that into consideration. Or to put it slightly differently, to acknowledge that the public opinion that you, that you refer to, as of course being partly constituted by the court and by law, to acknowledge that that public opinion will not just be public opinion on what you might call the merits of vacancy laws or of, of uh, discriminatory laws, etc. It will also be public opinion on questions of legitimacy, questions of what does good law look like, what, what can courts do. People were debating the merits of vagrancy laws in the Middle Ages in Europe, and people were advancing the argument that begging should be allowed and that we should have mercy towards beggars, etc. But of course, then legal change through courts was not an option. So ideas changed not just on the merits of these cases, but also on on the, the way law could and should appropriately respond. And so it's more of a question than a, than a comment is, what does law, taking law seriously mean here? And how do you go beyond not just taking doctrine seriously, but also taking changing attitudes towards law um, seriously? And I think I'll, I'll finish with, with one maybe short example on that particular point. Um, and that's the idea of changes over time in these attitudes. So if you take Professor Golubov's work on racial discrimination and then on the vagrancy laws and then on the marriage equality cases, we are covering about 80 years or 90 years of, of constitutional history, which is, of course, quite a long period. And it would be reasonable to assume that ideas about what does good legal reasoning look like, right? what is the appropriate role of, of, what's the appropriate pace of legal change, for example, that those ideas would change over time. And as an outsider, which, which I am, you may be forgiven for taking very crude um, approaches to this. So what, one thing you could do is just look at the legal language that is used. So the rhetoric that judges use in this particular case to signal in this conversation with the public, in that debate, that ongoing debate about legitimacy, to, legitimacy, to signal their ideas about the appropriateness of change or the speed of change or their role, etc., and so if you do look at that particular language, I think you do see very clear changes over time. And to give you just one very crude example on which I'll, I'll finish, if you just search for something like the, an expression like, the time has come. Right? When do judges at the Supreme Court say, use the phrase, the time has come, to signal something like, the time has come for us to acknowledge that, this doctrine, etc. Right? Or the time has come for us to overturn this and that. That's not the same thing as looking at precedent, very strictly speaking. It's taking this conversational aspect into account. And if you do that, you very quickly see that for decades on end, nobody used that phrase. And of course, unsurprisingly, um, by the 1960s and the 1970s, this phrase becomes used quite a lot. And then, interestingly enough, by the 1980s and 90s, it's beginning to be used less. And when people use it in the 80s and 90s, you see for the first time people saying, the time has come for us, when I say people, I mean Supreme Court justices, of course, at this point. You see justices for the first time saying things like, the time has come for us to acknowledge that we've gone too far and that we need to go back. Nobody says that before the 1980s. Now, I realize this is of a crudeness that is almost embarrassing compared to what you've been talking about, but it is, does give you, as an outsider, a, a, a quick view uh, to confirm some intuitions, and it would leave me with, with a question, which is the 60s and the 70s, or the long 60s, as you would call them, 
are distinct in terms of changing social attitudes. I mean, that, that becomes very clear. But how distinct are they in terms of changes in attitudes towards, to put it again crudely, what does good law, uh, good law look like? What are they, are, they, are they distinctive? Well, those are just some of the, the, the ways in which your lecture got me thinking. I'm sure that many of us will have lots of ideas about how your work relates to what we're all doing. And um, on behalf of everyone, thank you very much. Thank you. That's a great time. Well, thank, thank you both. Um, going to stay here so I can see people over here might want to ask questions. Um, you probably want to respond to some of Yako's comments, but I think what I'll do instead is first of all see if people have questions and maybe you can thread answers or, to some of Yako's points in if that's that okay to do it that way. So I'll see whether people want to ask questions now. Um, have you got microphones around? Or? Okay, so this this gentleman here. <laughs> it's not pronounceable, so it's okay. Because <laughs> uh, you argue that they're in court, um, in some cases, doesn't act in the interest of the people, even after the um, Civil War, even after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed, the court kind of turned a blind eye towards what the Southern states were doing after, like, grandfather causes were passed, literacy tests were passed, and, um, Things like that, which kind of restricted um, the the right for um, African Americans to vote. Do you argue that the court, that this is this is an instance where the court doesn't act in the interest of the American of the American people society? Uh, so I think that. The judicial response to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments are a problem for the folks who think the court follows public opinion and that that's a, a, a fine thing. Um, you know, in my historian's hat and my court watcher's hat, I have different responses to that. As a general matter, and why I say that I don't think describing these processes of constitutional conversation doesn't legitimate what the court does, I actually think that the efforts that constitutional law scholars and theorists make to try to find value neutral ways of legitimating the court don't work. Uh, I think that there is always normative values behind what the court does and behind one's views of what the court does. So at the time, actually, did a majority of Americans think that African Americans shouldn't vote? Probably a lot of Americans did, right? One might say, I mean, certainly uh, most white Americans in the South uh, thought that. Um, and uh, and so I don't think it's, it's sort of, it's a good example for why I don't think this is a helpful way of talking about it, right? Uh, I think you have to have a normative theory of what the Constitution should mean and, and of, of equality and liberty and dignity. And I don't think that the court was, uh, you know, interpreting the Constitution in the best light that it could have in those examples. But I also don't necessarily think that it was going against what a lot of white Americans thought it should be doing. And that's especially problematic. And one of the, you know, another way that people respond to the counter-majoritarian difficulty is to say, well, when there are problems in the political process, then it's right for the court to step in. And the court essentially allowed those problems of the political process to come up come about in the late 19th century. There's a, a famous case called Giles versus Harris uh, from the early 20th century in which uh, after a, an instance of disenfranchisement, 
the court says, well, even if we say you're not allowed to do that, uh, I think it's it's either Alabama or Mississippi, they're still going to do it. And we don't really have any power to stop them from doing it. And the court really does validate the project of, of Jim Crow in, in a big way. And I think that's problematic, but that's different from saying it was doing or wasn't doing what the majority of the country would have wanted. I, I don't think whether it's doing what the majority of the country wanted or not is a legitimating uh, answer. Um, and we have a question from. My question is about uh, corporations, corporations, people, Citizens United, and now it's in front of the court again, the hobby of it is in front of the court at the moment. I don't want to tell some sort of liberal European doesn't understand crazy American rule that I'm talking about. It really does seem crazy. <laughs> um, so I just wonder if you could talk about how public agencies have not gone into that ruling at all, really, it seems to be the opinion of very small and not to Americans that would be in favour of that. And sort of just try and explain how the system divided and the idea of corporations as people is coming back as far as going ahead. Uh, so. I find it troubling as well, and my husband actually will be here next week talking more specifically about corporations and people, um, but uh, uh, in the context of Hobby Lobby and, and religion. Um, but I guess what I would say is that the the case in which the court originally said that corporations were people was an 1896 case called Santa Clara Railroad. Uh, and uh, that case, I, I think, is problematic too. But one of the things that's really interesting is there are cases throughout the 20th century Century that are dealing with this issue. Um, but you get to Citizens United, and suddenly there's Santa Clara Railroad as a resource for uh, particular interests to motivate and mobilize on their behalf. And so that's a really long constitutional conversation conversation, right? Um, but that wasn't the way in which the court understood what it was doing in 1896. Um, but it does get appropriated by new groups of people. And, you know, one of the things, and I, I didn't talk about this in my in my talk, and it's certainly more of my court watchers uh, hat than anything else, but it definitely matters who is on the court. Uh, and it doesn't matter, I, I don't think it matters in some crude way that we can, you know, identify people's political persuasion and who uh, appoint to them and then identify what the outcome of a particular case will be. But it is, I think, uh, there is, is really amazing data out there that um, the Chamber of Commerce has won, I think, almost every case in which it submitted an amicus brief in, in the recent Roberts Court. Uh, and I, I do think, and this is why I say toward the end of my talk, right, every conversation has its own story. And some of those stories are more democratic and some are less, and some of those stories are more about fixing the kinds of uh, procedural problems that we were just talking about a minute ago and, in my view, are, are more about increasing my normative views of what liberty and equality are. Uh, certainly the folks who are pushing Citizens United and, and Hobby Lobby have a different view of what liberty means, and uh, and they're pushing it, but I, you know, I think that comes down to, to one's normative view of the of, of issues. Um, but certainly, I think you can see a similar kind of conversation and the way in which new groups represented by particular kinds of lawyers with particular kinds of ideological biases, which is exactly what happens in the vagrancy law context, are, are now talking about corporations being people. And so it's not the fact of that process uh, that makes something legitimate. It's what arguments you're making and what values you're speaking from. 
And I should have said, by the way, you can ask questions of Yako as well. I'm sure he's glad that I point that out. Um, and you should jump in if you want to answer any of these You're questions. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Uh, uh, my question was uh, related to, you know, you're talking about the wellness where Will you say the last part, the mutually exclusive, and then what? Yeah, if it necessarily means that, like, um, this is a mean that action is not possible. Oh, I agree. I, I agree. I think, and that's partly why I say every story is its own story, right? So they can be interrelated. So I'm using public opinion because that's the, the, the term that these scholars have been using when they're making this argument. I don't actually think public opinion is a very useful term. I don't think that there usually is a single public opinion. The public is fractured. Uh, there are multiple kinds of groups, multiple kinds of constituents. And, uh, and so I definitely think that some of the time this conversation uh, that the court is having is with a lot of different Americans of a lot of different types. And I think some of the time the conversation the court is having and Citizens United, I think, is one of those examples where it's a relatively small group of pretty privileged people who are having this conversation with the court. Um, so so I, I agree with you completely. My question is on constitutional interpretation in the future. And because of the constitutional jury, so my question is what is that moving to a system where a jury making a fundamental decision rather than a Supreme Court, both in Europe and in America, would make more sense to make a system more transparent. The jury is as possible as the Supreme Court. Yes. So I suppose here... I don't have formulated answer to that question, and it's very interesting to think about. But I would say uh, that this is where um, Yako is pointing out my view that law and doctrine are actually really important comes into play. Um, there are a fair number of legal scholars and especially legal historians who don't think doctrine is important at all, who would say that of the categories of, of the aspects of a case, that the important ones are the outcome and the political intervention. Right? That's what cases do. They intervene into politics and they have a certain outcome. Um, and so one of the things that I think is actually re really important is I, I think law does matter and I, and I think that it limits what uh, judges feel that they can do and that's a combination. I don't think that's because precedent binds or because the judges necessarily believe in precedent that they are bound by it. I do think that there are professional harms <laughs> and there are professional norms and those professional norms don't allow you to make just any argument. Um, and so I, I think about Bush versus Gore, the case in 2000 that made um, uh, George Bush president of the United States instead of Al Gore. And a lot of people interpret that case as there were five Republicans on the court and there were four Democrats and the Republicans won. And I think that's probably largely right as a matter of, of why the case came out the way it did. But that's not what they said. And they couldn't have said that. Instead, they wrote a long opinion about the Equal Protection Clause and how the Equal Protection Clause required this outcome because they couldn't just say, we're five Republicans and we like this. And so when you talk about a jury, I think, well, 
you then lose a fair bit of the constraining effects of law. Maybe that's good and maybe it's bad, but I do think that because professional norms do so much work for both lawyers and judges of what kind of argument passes the laugh test and and what kind of argument can you make with a straight face and still maintain your professional credibility, I think that changes fundamentally if you have a jury, uh, right? And the the benefit is, I suppose, you're straight at public opinion or some cross-section of public opinion uh, answering the question. Uh, But if what you're worried about or what you're thinking about is, you know, how one interprets the Constitution with some fidelity to views about legal interpretation and a semi-autonomous field, then I think think you lose that. I don't know if you want to add anything. Diverse, not, not in terms of who you are, but where, where I'm. There's a microphone next to you. Will you say it again? Do the newspapers play any part in molding public opinion? Absolutely. I think they absolutely play a part. Uh, and I think that. Uh, I think legal professionals are very aware that they play a part. Uh, So one of the things when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, it was a very short opinion, and the justices wanted it to be a short opinion because they wanted the newspapers to print the whole opinion. They wanted the whole thing. So that's that's one thing. But I I do also think that separate and apart from what legal professionals want, newspapers absolutely uh, mold public opinion. And one of the things that's really interesting is to read from a particular moment and a particular place newspapers of different political persuasions, right? And there's, you know, social science evidence these days that shows that most people read newspapers or watch media outlets that largely agree with what they already think. Um, And so in that sense, it might be said that media confirms public opinion more than molds it. Um, But I do think media media plays a role. I think in the civil rights movement, uh, journalists who covered uh, protests and covered the repressive responses to protests and took photos Photographs, especially of those repressive responses, I think that was hugely influential in changing northern white public opinion uh, in favor of African Americans and of the civil rights movement. So I think the answer is definitely yes. I want to maybe to add, add something on that. This is one of the points that comparative law may be useful again to show the contingency of the audience, right? so that these courts in different systems are addressing different kinds of audiences, and that again on the superficial reading. I think it's fair to say that the United States Supreme Court is in much more of a dialogue with a broader segment of society than many European courts would be. So, for example, the European Court of Justice in, in Luxembourg, um, certainly for the first decades of its existence, was in a dialogue with a very small group of elite lawyers in big firms representing normally big companies. Now, you can imagine that that has uh, a relation, bears a relationship to the way this conversation is then carried out. And so that is why, again, if you talk about how do you maintain the autonomy or the appearance of autonomy, um, then it would make sense for a court that is in conversation with the public at large, also through newspapers, to say we cannot, something like, we cannot go further than this because there is a bright line rule. Uh, something like that. Because a bright line that's a very visceral image 
that might work with the public at large. Whereas if your interlocutors are elite lawyers and, and scholars, you might say something like, um, the, the code for this is we are constrained in what we can do would not be something like a bright line rule, but it might be something like a historically grown system with you know of a pyramidal conceptual something of the way that, you know in the way that German lawyers would write. Okay? Um, so I think this is again one of the areas where where comparative law shows shows the, the contingency quite useful. There's a hand at the back, and I should make a list. Um, in the wake of the Edward Snowden revelations, I'm wondering if you think that the issue of online privacy um, may come before the Supreme Court say on Fourth Amendment grounds, and if so, what, how do you see that playing out? I'm sure that it will, but it's not something that I know a lot about. Uh, and I will say, so I will say one thing, though, that on issues of the Fourth Amendment and privacy, the usual uh, lines of liberal and conservative and majority and dissent are different. Uh, so Justice Scalia is often a very... Um, uh, ardent defender of Fourth Amendment privacy rights, and so you get different lineups, and uh, and so if it happens, I think it will be very interesting. But it's definitely the case that in the criminal procedure cases, the lineups can be very different. And Justice Breyer, who's the justice that I clerked for, uh, has quite a lot of faith in government actors, and so he's not always a libertarian on those kinds of things. So so the lineup does move in different ways, and I I think it would be hard to predict, but but I can't predict it. Sorry. Gentlemen here, if I to see how your interesting analysis could possibly apply at all to European context. I was thinking of capital punishment in the 50s, which is trying to say that uh, the view of parliamentarians against capital uh, punishment was way ahead of the public studies. Trying to be inclusive. I'm not trying to pass the book. Um, so I don't know is the real answer. I'm sorry to say, um, but but I suppose one thing that I would say one of the reasons why I think that this conversation has come up in the United States is because justices of the Supreme Court tend to be elites. Uh, and uh, at different times, you know, elites are more conservative than the population or less conservative, you know, are more progressive than the population, but elites are a particular segment of the population, as in Parliament, that it's a particular segment of the population. And so one of the things that I think is problematic about talking about public opinion in the way that a lot of scholars do is that it's so fragmented in, in so many different ways. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't know how a Supreme Court would have interacted in that particular moment, but I, I would say that in the United States, the, 
the history of capital punishment and what the Supreme Court did was really interesting, right? Because in 1972, the Supreme Court strikes down uh, the the laws, uh, the death penalty laws in the United States, and in 1976. Um, you know, states reenact new laws according to the rules that there are multiple opinions. It's very hard to tell what they think would be constitutional, but it's clear that at least some of them think at least some laws would be constitutional. And so states respond, and then in 1976, they're upheld again. Uh, And, you know, I I think the justices, I think it's one of those moments that these scholars have been writing about when the justices thought maybe they thought they knew what public opinion was, and it turned out they were not in sync, right? They 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 were not quite in sync. They were in sync with some people, but not others. But I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm capable of really answering the question about what it would look like here. Uh, just two quick questions. First, um, I mean, don't we want the court to go precisely against public opinion? I mean, and what I have in mind is not, uh, it's not realized a political process failure, but a professor who was judicial review of uh, the democracy today. But the fact that we need the court exactly to go against public opinion. And the second uh, thing I want to ask is about uh, what is our conception of public opinion? Because if it's the imminent or the temporary uh, majority's will, this is different from the conception of public opinion that is maybe super temporal or intergenerational. Because if we look at the public opinion as public commitments throughout time, then if the court decides against it, the current majority, it is still not acting in a counterintuitive way because it corresponds to Right. So it, that's a it, that's an articulation, right? Of of one of the responses, one of the other responses to the counter-majoritarian difficulty is that there's a counter-majoritarian virtue, and that the whole idea of having a Supreme Court is that it is not as subject to the whims of momentary majorities and, and temporary ideas and, and can withstand them better. Um, and and that's certainly a very prominent argument, and it's the main argument that these new folks are arguing against, right, to say, actually, if you look at it, they don't act counter-majoritarianly all that often. And the times when we've maybe thought that they did, they weren't really. So um, Brown versus Board of Education, some have described as counter-majoritarian virtue, right? Isn't that a good thing? Others have said, actually, a majority of the country was in favor of Brown and was in favor of desegregation. Now, not a majority of the white South, but a majority of the country. And so that uh, account treats the white South as an outlier and says the court actually wasn't acting counter-majoritarianly. I think you could describe it in either way, frankly. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think complicates the account that you're offering is, well, when we think about what the Constitution is, one might say the Constitution was just public opinion in 1787 or 1789, and why should majorities of today be bound by the majorities? of 1787, right? So you could say, well, that's we have the the justices, the Supreme Court, we have judicial review in order so to to uh, even out the whims of the temporary whims of the majority. But what are we evening them out with? We're evening them out with a document that was created by a certain majority, although some would say an elite minority, actually, um, of 1787. So I, I, I think it's a really hard, complicated question. And uh, when I teach constitutional law, 
uh, many of my students really deeply believe in the counter-majoritarian virtue. And actually, you know, depending on your politics, if you were to line up a lot of the cases, it's not clear to me that you end up thinking that the court's gotten it right a lot of the time. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's true whether you identify as conservative or as liberal. About half the time, you're not going to think that they got it right. And then where does that leave you with the counter-majoritarian virtue? I, I, when you kept doing that with public opinion, because you don't really, really mean public opinion, you no. mean that you don't expect the Supreme Court to read off public opinion. If it did that, then it would be better if it just did opinion polls rather yes. than presenting judgments. So I took it you meant something else. But then there is within the United States that debate about whether or not having a Supreme Court do any sort of decision making that tries to reflect public opinion whether or not that's a good thing. Jeremy Baldwin, I think, mm-hmm. is a classic exponent of this. He says, well, the point about legislatures is that they have a democratic mandate in right. like the United States, and therefore it's not an accurate reflection of public opinion, but it's, it's, it's better than a Supreme Court could ever do because legislatures, unlike courts, are typically fairly large, relatively diverse um, assemblies, and therefore they can do a better job of decision-making. And because of that, we're different, I guess. We have parliamentary supremacy, and we've never quite gone to the step of having capital JR judicial review. And I just wondered, Risa, what what do you think of that? I mean, I, I, I get the sense that you have your reservations about judicial review of legislative action as a phenomenon, but I imagine that you would have strong reservations about parliamentary supremacy as well. I I would. (laughs) I definitely have reservations about both, and I think part of the reason is that I do see, and I'm not as familiar but with uh, with the parliamentary process, but I assume the same kinds of public choice theories that people talk about in the U.S. would apply. Um, and so, you know, I do see a lot of non-democratic decision-making by legislatures. I do see systematic reasons why non-democratic decision-making are go- is going to happen, that, it, you know, people can uh, organize when, when a small group of people has a, a big interest in something, uh, they're going to be able to organize and pass legislation that may be detrimental to a large group of people a little bit. And, you know, so I think that the public choice arguments about why legislatures fail to represent democracy do resonate with me somewhat. But I also think um, that much of what the court does is politics. And uh, and that's concerning to me because they are not accountable. And the, uh, the best way that I've been able to think about it, and I don't think this is really an answer, but... Um, if all of the politics is flawed and if no one represents a true majority or if we have concerns like you have about the constant representation of a tree, about thoroughgoing democracy, um, then maybe it's not so bad to have two different institutions that have slightly different relationships to majoritarian democracy. Uh, and, and, and maybe you're more likely to get some institution getting it right, depending on what you think right is, with those two slightly different constituencies and those two slightly different sets of flaws. I don't know that I think that, but at my most optimistic, that's what I tend to think. Could I have one yeah. comparative law point again? Or this just very briefly. If you, if you think about the, the obvious biggest 20th century crisis in continental Europe, right? it's the Second World War. And that crisis is in three ways really interesting for the argument you're having, because it had basically three effects. One, 
a big distrust of majoritarian decision-making, of public opinion. No direct equivalent in the United States to almost no reaction in terms of distrust of courts or legal method. I mean, we'd be hard-pressed to say law under fascism was that were courts too flexible, were they too rigid? I mean, we, we wouldn't know, and I don't think anybody knows. And more interestingly, we don't really care. We don't think it's such an important question. Again, no equivalent in the United States. And the third point, this relates also to the capital punishment question, of course, is, is a, a, a huge response in terms of uh, um, the idea of responsibility of, of, of courts, in particular to enforce human rights standards. All of these are very different. And so that's why you get and one of the striking quotes that, that I know of in this area is a German constitutional court judge who at some point worries and says we must be careful that we don't let the faith in democracy in, sorry the faith in the court turn into a an enemy of faith in democracy right? now that's radically different from anything that you would uh, that you would see in the United States and so perhaps again that helps to put that debate in, in context you, you, so you, you've had a question but by all means again um, could, you, um, could you argue that the court doesn't really have enough power at all? Uh, because even though they do have judicial review, I mean, what's the point of having judicial review if, on paper, the law says something's unconstitutional, if no one's really there to enforce it? It would have brownly deported education in 1954 after um, they claimed that um, segregation was uh, there unconstitutional. I mean, in some areas in the South, that was, that was, that was never applied, and then 20 years later, um, the court had a, um, another case that come to, which was Swanley-Mecklenburg. And um, could you argue, therefore, that the court doesn't really have much power to do anything? I mean, in theory, they do want to practice here. Uh, so I wouldn't put it as a binary, right? I would say, you know, that when the court issues decisions, it operates on all these different levels that I was talking about before, right? So um, I think it is true that as a matter of legal outcome, the court often has to rely on the enforcement of other branches willing to enforce what it does as a legal outcome or it's not going to happen, right? So um, if uh, Southern governmental officials say we're not going to abide by Brown versus Board of Education, unless uh, President Eisenhower sends in troops and says, yes, you are, then that's not going to happen, right? And President Eisenhower does at one point send in troops and back up the court, but that wasn't a foregone conclusion, um, and, uh, and and that makes the court very nest- very nervous, and it's one of the reasons why the folks who argue that the court doesn't, that the court follows public opinion would say, the court doesn't want to risk its legitimacy, it doesn't want to issue an opinion that no one's going to follow, because then everyone believes the court doesn't have any power, going back to these general argu- attitudes about law, uh, and not just about the merits of a single case, the court very aware of that. Um, But I would say that on all these other dimensions, right, uh, the rhetoric, the the, uh, instructions to lower courts, the cultural production, the political intervention, I think the court does have power uh, as a a statement about culture, as as lots of other things. And so I, I don't think even though it is true that for enforcement against a reticent 
party, it has to rely that if it says you must desegregate, someone's actually going to hold them in contempt if they don't and then put them in jail if they don't and, uh, and, and actually make that happen. But I don't think that's the only way that the court operates. And I think Brown was actually incredibly powerful in other ways. Uh, as a political intervention, it actually had a, a lot of unintended consequences um, of, of hardening and uh, radicalizing white Southerners, uh, white Southern politicians to be more against segregation than some of them had been before Brown because suddenly either you're for us or against us and they have to uh, choose one side or the other. Um, I think Brown was incredibly powerful in not a positive way, in my view, in constructing an image of Jim Crow that Jim Crow was really only about governmental, uh, uh, formal governmental uh, discrimination. And I think that lots of people before Brown had an image that Jim Crow was also about material inequality. It was also about private exploitation and economic exploitation. And when Brown says, this is Jim Crow, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, that's Jim Crow. And then we can fix that. And then we do. And then we're left with lots of inequality that we don't know where it came from. Well, it was always there. We just didn't see it in the opinion, and then it gets lost. Um, so I actually think the court has lots of different kinds of power that it exercises, but it always exercises that power in conjunction with the media or legal scholars or lawyers or social movements who are uh, responding to the court. We've got time for one or two more questions, so um, please. I'm just wondering if you think about the relationship between the decisions that don't actually lead to a substantial outcome, kind of like the dates that you mentioned, or decisions on procedural grounds, and kind of looking through that and public opinion. For example, I'm thinking that a lot of these decisions, although they don't actually lead to a substantial outcome, they you know, stir debate and get people talking and potentially have the um, possibility of developing a consensus in the public. And so maybe that's what kind of courts are saying in some way times, but by stirring that debate, it may become a time. Yes. <laughs> uh, so my book, I, I talk about all these vagrancy cases, and most of them result in very little legal doctrine, and I think they're incredibly important. And I think that uh, the way we in, in the United States create the canon of important cases is all wrong. Uh, and I think that there are lots of cases that don't create substantial legal doctrine, either because they're dismissed altogether or, um, or, or they're too narrow procedurally, are incredibly important. And uh, and and there for precisely the reasons that you say. So there are often concurring opinions or dissenting opinions that are giving hints to people about where they should focus their energies. I mean, you, when you read Justice Scalia's opinion in Windsor in this this DOMA case, the, the gay marriage case, the whole opinion is him telling litigators what to do next, right? And that's frequently what he does when he's in dissent. He he's very smart, and he says simultaneously, "There's no way to cabin this analytical." And here are the ways to have it analytically. Let me tell you. Um, and and the justices are talking to the lawyers, and they're talking to people who they think are interested, and people are listening. And one of the things that I do in my book project about vagrancy law is show the ways in which suddenly you're getting a canon. And in 1952, when this first case comes up, they've got nothing to cite, nothing to cite. And by you know the mid 1960s, even though they haven't won a single Supreme Court case, they've got four or five Supreme Court cases dissenting concurring, whatever. But they're up there, right? They, they can use them, and the lower courts are using them, and the lawyers are using them, and they're constructing a canon of support for their position, even though they haven't yet won a case. Um, so, absolutely. 
One last question, anybody? Don't have to, but it's time. So. Would you say that um, recently the caliber of nominees uh, put forward by the President of the United States, they, it's, it would seem that things have become so politicized that uh, since, say, uh, President Nixon and Reagan, I think it's... Um, it's just game playing. And then when one thinks about the history of the Supreme Court, people like Brandeis and it's hard. And then Clarence Thomas, I mean, perhaps like, where did he come from? It's just, it's, it's an embarrassment of the courts in the United States legal system. I would say, generally speaking, folks date Robert Bork's failed nomination as the moment when nominations became incredibly politicized. Now, I, that's not to say that they weren't political before that. They were. Um, but, uh, but, but I think people identify that as the moment when it became really hard to become a justice if you were on record as having said certain kinds of things. Um, one thing that strikes me, but even saying that, though, there have been people, you know, since Bork, and Justice Souter comes to mind as the most obvious example, who was nominated by a Republican president and turned out to be one of the most liberal members of the court, right? So despite all the politicization, uh, people's views change. Um, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, you know, is certainly no liberal, uh, but he's 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 moved more to the middle, and I, I think he's done so in part because he wants to be the middle. Uh, uh, but but I, I so so I would say yes, I think that has been the general trend. But I don't think that means that every single nomination has has ended up the way people thought they would. Um, I would also say I think it's very interesting that. Republicans, I think, have been more successful in uh, nominating folks who are more ideologically extreme than Democrats have been. And I think part of it has to do with the willingness of the president. I think part of it has to do with the willingness of people in Congress to uh, take stands, even when so when there's a, a well-qualified but particularly liberal nominee, I think Republicans are more willing to say no than, than Democrats are. Um, and so one of the things that I see on the court is that the Republican-nominated members of the court are more uh, ideologically to the right than the Democratically-nominated members are to the left. And so that skews the whole court, I think, further to the right, because the Democrats are more moderate and the Republicans are more extreme. Although one of the things that I do think um, can happen once justices get to the court is they become radicalized uh, and and they can they can become more liberal, and I, I think especially in the context of the politicization of the nomination process, people now know that right. This is another one of those meta meta things, right? So you know, if you're a young person who has their eye on the Supreme Court, I am not one of those people. I don't know who those people are, but I'm sure they exist. Um, you know that you need to stay close to the middle 
right? And maybe once you're on the Supreme Court, you don't need to stay close to the middle anymore. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of the newer left-leaning members of the court lean more left. Um, because if you're savvy, you know that it's going to be really hard to get through. And I don't think that that's been the lesson on the right. I think that's been the lesson uh, more so, much, much more so on the left. I mean, I do think, I mean, Chief Justice Roberts played it pretty close to the vest. Uh, and I think, I think that... It, it was possible to see his conservatism before he was nominated, but I think he tried pretty hard to keep it under wraps. Um, but I, 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 Justice Alito certainly didn't. He, he was quite um, uh, apparent in his in his views, which were pretty far to the right. Um, so all that is to say yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, Risa, Jacob, both of you, thank you very much for putting so much work into this. And, Providing such thought, thoughtful and thought-provoking presentations, but also for answering such a diversity of questions as well at such length and in such an impressive, such an impressive way. So, on behalf of all of us, thank you. Thank you.